Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to share God's word with us this morning. We're going to, or I'm going to read all of 1 Samuel chapter 15. There are 35 verses. I can do this. And we're looking at, in this uh, section of 1 Samuel, the fall of King Saul. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
And Samuel turned to go away. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of God. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, as we just read your word, and as we are about to hear your word proclaimed, May we hear and receive with joy what it is that you have to say to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God issues very specific commands to Saul, who's king of Israel at that time, to wipe out the Amalekites, devote them to destruction, and spare nothing. Saul disobeys. Why does he disobey? Does he disobey because this command seems so immoral and unethical? How do you kill women and children? Why would you destroy everything? And on a side note, the Amalekites, they are sinners. This passage is very clear. They ambushed the Israelites on their way out of Egypt. They are Israelites' historic enemy. But that's not why Saul disobeys. It's not because he thought God's command was immoral. And it's not because he forgot. We're going to look at the reasons why Saul disobeyed, and I think we're going to relate to it. And the first reason why Saul disobeys is because he craves the approval of people. It's called the idol of approval. And that's the first point this morning. The idol of approval, what is it? It's making gods out of people. At first, Saul tries to play it off. He, he tells Samuel, I obeyed. I did exactly what God wanted me to do. And then Samuel calls him out and he's like, then why am I hearing the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen? If you were supposed to utterly destroy everything, why are these animals still alive? Saul is exposed. He knows you can't keep up this lie anymore. And so he twists the narrative. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. This is also known as the fear of man. Saul feared the people. Meaning what? He feared losing their approval. This is what Saul wanted the most. This is what he desired the most. This is what he felt like he needed the most. And if he didn't, have people's approval, if people didn't like him, his world would collapse. He wouldn't have meaning. He would be depressed or he would be down. The fear of man, it's when 
our need for other people's approval grows to idolatrous proportions and we make gods out of the people in our lives and our lives begin to revolve around being liked, fitting in, and keeping up. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe there's a constant fear of being behind some new trend, fashion or tech, being behind some new TV show or some new food or travel experience. The fear of man, the idol of approval, the root of that is is envy. We envy others. And when we envy others, we want their approval and they become our gods. The mountaintop experience of the idol approval, we think we make it when what? When we are no longer envying others, but if we can get others to envy us. That's how you know you made it. Getting other people to envy you. Wow, look at where they travel. Look at all the restaurants that they're eating at. Look at their family. Their marriage is perfect. Look at their their clothes. Look at what they drive. Look at where they live. And for all of us, that could feel pretty good to be the admiration of others. But that's sinful. We know it's sinful to envy others. Did you also know it's a sin to want others to envy you? To want to be other people's gods? There's nothing wrong with compliments. There's nothing wrong with words of encouragement. But when that consumes us and controls us, that's the idol of approval. It does feel good. And it's addictive. Social media knows how addictive that can be. How often do you check Instagram after you post it to see how many people reacted or liked? And when you do get those reactions, when you do get those likes, it feels pretty good. And when you don't, you wonder what's going on. Why don't you have their approval? Saul's treasure is exposed. His treasure is not God. He's the king of Israel, anointed by God, but he doesn't love God. He loves himself. He's still the king of Israel. He'll still do the king things, but we see here that his true treasure is the approval of others, and Saul actually uses God. This is ironic. He uses God And this is also twisted to serve his idol. We see this in his pretend repentance. Let's look at verse 30. Saul said, I have sinned. It sounds like repentance. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. It sounds like worship. It's bookended this statement with repentance and worship. And you think, oh man, Saul loves God. He's changing. Not true. You look at the the middle portion here. What does he want? What's really going on in his heart? He wants Samuel, who's the priest at that time, to return with him. What is all that about? He is afraid of losing Samuel's visible public support and endorsement. Because Samuel's the priest at that time and basically God's right-hand man 
And if Saul loses Samuel's endorsement, it's like he's losing God's endorsement. And if he loses God's endorsement, then he can no longer be king. What Samuel wants the most is to be king, to be loved, to be adored, and to have the approval of the people. And he's using God. He's using Samuel to get that. It's a PR stunt. I think one reason why the idol approval is so powerful and so prevalent in our lives is because shame is so powerful and prevalent in our lives. Ed Welch, a Christian counselor, he says that shame, it's the experience of feeling unacceptable, being different or lesser than others. He says that this experience of shame, many begin to experience that in childhood, failing to measure up to our parents' expectation, struggling to fit in with our peers because of how you look, how you dress, you sound different. And we experience shame from a very early age, and many of us are still carrying those childhood shames with us today. You're still trying to live up to your parents' expectations. You still can't get their approval. And that is all you've ever wanted your entire life is for your mom, your dad to say, good job, I love you. The greater the shame, the greater the fear of not having the approval of others, the greater the shame, the greater the craving to fit in and to be liked. Shame is so powerful and strong that we would do almost anything to avoid it. And that's exactly what Saul did. Later, near the end of his life, he's at war with the Philistines. He's badly wounded. And he tells his armor bearer to kill him. Why? Because capture would mean shame. The enemies would shame you. And they would torture you. And so Saul tells his armor bearer, take my life. I'd rather die than be shamed. The armor bearer declines because he knows that that's wrong. Saul also knows it's wrong, which is why he wants somebody else to kill him. But because he won't, he takes his own life. Saul would rather die. And for many of us, we would do almost anything to avoid shame. Shame feels like social death. And for us, for many of us, our social status is really important, if not maybe the most important thing in our lives. We think getting the approval from others will make us happier. But that's far from the truth. Just like any idol, they make promises. This will finally satisfy you. This will finally make you happy. But like with any idol, the idol approval, it will only enslave you and hurt you. Proverbs 29, 25, let's read this. The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man, the idol of approval, it's a trap. It promises freedom and happiness, but it'll only torment you and hurt you. It'll wear you out. One Harvard study, they, they found out that those who struggle with pleasing people, people pleasers, they're at higher risk of burnout. 
Why? Because people-pleasing, seeking the approval of others, it's really exhausting. They discovered that it leads to chronic stress. Are you exhausted because of the idol of approval? Are you chronically stressed out because you're always trying to please other people? And you're always thinking about what other people are thinking about you and you can't turn off your mind and you're overthinking things. Biblically speaking, the fear of man, it's a snare because it'll limit how we can live for God. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, let's look at this. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul knows you cannot serve two masters. He couldn't be a faithful apostle and missionary and preacher and church planter if he struggled with the fear of man and wanted their approval. He had to choose one. He can't do both. The fear of man and the idol approval will get in your way of following Christ, obeying God, living faithfully for him. One practical example, are you unable to leverage your finances for missions, for the church, for ministry because you're over leveraged because your house broke? House broke doesn't mean you can't buy a house because you're broke. It means you're broke because you bought a house that you can't afford because you're trying to attain a certain status because your idol is the idol of approval and you care so much what, about peop- what other people think about you. Because of that, there is no margin in your finances or maybe your time because you have to work more hours now to maintain that particular lifestyle. You could be house broke, you could be car broke, tech broke, clothes broke. Because you're serving the idol of approval. Paul says, you can't do both. You can't. You gotta pick one. If you serve the idol approval, all your resources and all your energy, all your time and all your thoughts will go there. If you're gonna serve God, your resources, your thoughts, your time, your energy will go there. What's the remedy to the idol of approval? Let's look at Samuel's response in verse 17. And Samuel said, speaking to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you over Israel. When we only see ourselves through our own eyes or through the eyes of others, you'll fall on two ends of the spectrum. One, it'll either make you really prideful, I'm awesome, or insecure, I'm nothing. It'll be one or the other. When you only see yourself through your own eyes or the eyes of other people, and in Saul's case, it was insecurity. Little in his own eyes. The ironic thing is that Saul was the tallest, best-looking guy in Israel. And when you look at people who seem to have everything, they seem so confident, they're so good-looking, driving the nicest cars, they live in the nicest houses. It seems like their career is so on track and it's soaring, they're on top of the world. You'd be surprised at how insecure that they could be. 
that those who seem like they have it all put together are actually so insecure because their insecurity is actually what's driving them to splurge on beauty products, to spend hours in the gym, and to over-leverage their finances. Saul was insecure. And when we try to do anything out of a place of insecurity, the outcome is never good. Because insecure people, they always view others as competition. And as Christians, we know we are to love others, serve others. We're to rejoice when others are rejoicing and to mourn when others are weeping. But when we come from a place of insecurity and envy and the idol of approval, you can't do that. It's way too hard to rejoice when other people are rejoicing because you're envious. You put on a fake smile, you like their post, but inside you're devastated and you're broken and you're down. It hurts you to see other people's success. And then when they don't succeed, you can't mourn with them because deep down their competition and part of you is kind of happy that they're not succeeding. It's dark and it is twisted. Saul was the leader of Israel. And for any leader who leads out of a place of insecurity, it's never a good thing because insecure leaders, they take all of the credit and they share all the blame. And that's exactly what Saul did. He built a memorial for himself and he took all of the credit. But when Samuel called him out and exposed them, he shared the blame. Oh, the people took the best of the animals. Nobody wants to follow a leader like that. You don't need to be a king. You don't need to be a pastor or a church leader. You're a leader in your home if you're a parent. Husbands, you leave your families, your wives. That's out of a place of insecurity. It's going to come out sideways. The remedy is this. Saul, he didn't know his status with God. Samuel's like, God anointed you king over Israel. That should be enough. As Christians, we need to know our status before God. And if we know that, we're not going to fear losing the approval of others, nor are we going to constantly crave their approval. First John 4, 18, John says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. When you know the perfect love of God that he has for you in Christ Jesus, what it means that you are a son and daughter of God, precious in his sight. You are so full. You are so satisfied. It frees you from the fear of not having other people's approval. You are free to do what? Like Paul, not live to please men anymore, but live your life to please God. That's the only place of security is when we find our identity in Christ. And when we do that, we don't have to fear looking bad. We no longer have to fear looking weak. We no longer have to fear our shame. Because as Christians in the gospel, it's very clear. It says we are all sinners. We're all weak and broken In order to be a Christian, you have to admit that you're a failure. And we can do that. 
when we know what Christ has done for us. We can admit and say, I am weak. I'm a failure. I've messed up. I'm a sinner, and I have so much shame and guilt in my life. But the gospel says that shame, it is part of your history, but it's not part of your identity. We can boast in our weakness because it points to the grace of God and the power of the cross. And that's the freedom we get in the gospel. I mentioned earlier that Harvard study that people-pleasing will burn you out. It'll exhaust you. One Christian author, David Murray, he understands this. He wrote a book on burnout, and he says this. For Christians, our best days are ahead of us. No matter how well we manage to recover and rebuild our identities in this world, there's a better identity awaiting in the world to come. He knows that for Christians, you're always going to get burned out if you're always trying to rebuild or find your identity in this world. The only rescue from that path, that rat race, is knowing that there's a better identity waiting for you in heaven. Saul struggled with the idol of approval. That's one reason why he disobeyed. The second reason why he disobeyed is because of something called presumption. If the idol of approval is making gods out of people, then the second point is this. Presumption, it's making God out of our own preferences. Verse 23, let's read this. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. What's divination? What's presumption? Divination is basically saying God doesn't know best, someone else knows better. At that time, they would go to diviners to seek guidance. And that was sinful. God said, don't do that because I am your authority. I will tell you what you need to know. Don't look elsewhere. But they would look elsewhere. Why? Because they didn't like what God said. And so they would want a second opinion. Divination is rebellion. Saul would actually do this later on in his life. He would seek out a witch for guidance rather than God. It's placing somebody else as the authority in your life. You listen to somebody else more than you listen to God. Who is that in your life? It could be your spouse. It could be your significant other. Maybe it's your children's wants and desires. Because you want so badly to have your own kids' approval because they are your idol, that you will listen to them over God. You will give in to their demands and their requests. That's divination. Presumption. It means that God doesn't know best. I know better. This is what Saul thought. Agag gets to keep his life. He's happy. Saul gets a memorial. He's happy. The soldiers, they get all of the, the best and choicest animals. They're happy. Win, win, win. God, I just improved on your command and your, your, your mission that you gave me. That's presumption. That you know better than God. You can do better than God. It's when you read the Bible, you, you see God's commandments on how you are to live, how you are to parent, and you modify it. Presumption is your own revised version of Christianity that suits your own preferences and fits into your schedule and keeps you comfortable based on the lifestyle that you want. 
Presumption is when we don't want the true Christianity to speak into our lives, to have a say in your marriage, to speak into your spending or your parenting. That's presumption. Samuel says that kind of presumption is iniquity and idolatry. You're placing yourself over God. Presumption is partial obedience. It's when you intentionally, partially obey. You keep the part that you like and you disregard the parts that you don't like. It's a picking and choosing. It's not the same as imperfectly obeying because we all imperfectly obey. There's no one here who perfectly obeys. But partial obedience is idolatry because you're intentionally, you know what you're doing, disobeying God. We can justify partial obedience in a lot of ways. We justify and we rationalize presumption. What does that sound like today? Well, let's first look at Saul. You could almost think about what he's thinking. He's being rational, even logical. We need soldiers to win the battle. We need to keep them happy. Or else, if they don't fight, if they don't stay, we can't win. And isn't winning what God wants? So I'll give the men what they want. Sounds so practical, rational, realistic. And we justify so much of our presumption and partial obedience the same way. Saul was wrong about two things. He thinks that God is only glorified if the battle is won. No. God is glorified when Saul obeys. It's not about winning. It's about obeying. He's wrong about the second thing. They need soldiers to win the battle. Since when did God need soldiers to win any battle? Case in point, Egypt, Red Sea, Second Kings. God sends a single angel to wipe out the entire army of the Assyrians. But we try to rationalize our disobedience. What is pragmatism? Presumptions sound like today in church. The bigger the church, the more God will be glorified. So we'll do whatever it takes to get more people in the doors, even if it means succumbing to popular ideologies, watering down the word. Or in life, you say, this season of my life, I'm focusing on my career, which is why I can't really go to church or attend small group and worship God. Because once I get my career on track, I can glorify God so much more later. And I'll make so much more money, I can give more offering later as well. Presumption. As if God is only glorified in bigger churches. As if God needs your money. As if God can't do anything if you don't get that promotion and he relies on you and needs you. Psalm 50, God says, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, all the birds, everything that moves is mine. Samuel tells Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. 
Jeremiah 16, 12. Let's read this. For you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. God is calling out the Israelites. And this is really interesting because he says what they're doing, this generation, is worse than the previous generation. The previous generation, they made and worshipped idols, Baal and Ashtaroth. And then God is saying what this generation is doing is worse. You don't worship the idols. You're actually worshiping yourself. You're not listening to idols. You listen to yourself. Presumption. What Jeremiah is describing then is still very much alive and well today. It's called expressive individualism, which sounds like you be you. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. In expressive individualism, the greatest sin is to not listen to your own heart and be true to yourself. The greatest sin is to ever question or judge someone else's self-expression. The greatest sin is to ever imply that there is a higher moral authority. Because it says you are the authority in your life. That ideology is very strong today. As Christians, of course, we celebrate individuals as created in the image of God. We celebrate how they are unique in their giftedness and their personalities. But expressive individualism, it doesn't just celebrate individuals, it elevates individuals above God. And there's a difference. It makes the image of God into God. And then God is made in the image of their preferences. It means you only obey within the parameters of your comfort level, only when it's expedient. Anything beyond that, you disregard. In the sin of presumption, there is no love for God. There is no awe of God. There is really no relationship with God. There is no delighting in God. Because they don't know God. Saul didn't know God. There was no relationship there. He did all of the God things on the outside. It looked like it. But we know deep down, there was no affection. If you think about it, though, it's hard to blame those who follow expressive individualism because when you look outside of yourself, you look at this world, it's so broken and fallen. There's so much betrayal and hurt and suffering, the greed. It's hard to trust. It's hard to find hope. It's hard to be optimistic when we look at this world. So you can't blame them when they choose not to look to this world, but they choose to look to themselves. But I believe that expressive individualism, they're right and wrong at the same time. They're right in that we shouldn't look to the world to find happiness and meaning, but they're wrong in that we should look to ourselves. They're right that we shouldn't be conformed to this world. Christians, we agree with that, but they are wrong in that we shouldn't be conformed at all. As Christians, we say, no, we shouldn't be conformed to this world, but we should be conformed to something outside of ourselves. And what is that? It's Jesus. Romans 8, 29. I'll read this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There you have it. That is the goal. 
That is where we find fullest joy and satisfaction. It's not conforming to this world. It's not conforming to our wants. It's conforming to Christ. He had the fullest joy and satisfaction and peace and purpose that any human being ever had. And we find that as well by looking more deeply at him and looking more like him. So the remedy to presumption, what is it? Let's look at Samuel's response. Verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Do you believe that? Do you believe obeying God is better? Not than just sacrifice, but better than everything else. The only way you're going to believe that is if you believe that God is good and he is perfect. The only way you're going to be able to believe that if God is not like the people of this world and leaders of this world, where you're, it's hard to trust those authorities because you, you feel like they're, they're still selfish in their motives. Do they really care about me? The only way you're going to believe that if you know God loves you perfectly The only way you're going to believe that is if you believe obeying God is what gives him the most glory and also what is most good for you, will give you the most joy. Obedience is the truest expression of worshiping God. Do you worship God? If I ask that, maybe you're thinking, I do. I'm here at church this morning. I just sang a bunch of songs. I'm worshiping God. That's really good and important. Samuel will say that's, that's the sacrifice. The truest expression of worship is, are you obeying God in your life? Where in your life are you resisting God? Are you partially obeying? Are you revising Christianity to fit into your preferences? Where in your life do you have the idolatry of presumption? Obedience is a good thing. I hope these two verses convince you of this. 1 John 5 and John 15. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments are not meant to be this weight, this drag on your life that gets in the way of your joy and happiness. No, it is the means to which you're going to experience the greatest joy and happiness. Jesus says in John 15, why do we want to keep his commandments? So that your joy may be full. So that you can have the fullest joy. Isn't that what you want? It's what Jesus wants for you as well. Let's close with this. Saul was an imperfect king. All of the kings were imperfect. None of them could rescue and deliver the people. We needed a perfect king, and that's Jesus. The third point, Jesus, the king after God's own heart, he defeated divination and presumption. We see divination and presumption in the, in the Garden of Eden and in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, divination and presumption triumphed. Adam and Eve, they heard another voice of Satan. 
eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they presumed in their own hearts this was better. They thought that they could improve on God's commandments, that this would be the source of their happiness. And so they ate, and we know what happened. In another garden, divination and presumption were defeated. The garden of Gethsemane and on the hill of Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. In the garden of Gethsemane, there was presumption, the temptation for presumption. Father, if you are willing, take this cup for me. Jesus could have rationalized. I've already done so much. Do I still have to die on the cross? Or if I live longer, I can preach more. I can heal more people. I can perform more miracles. Like Saul, Jesus could take his own life as a way of escaping shame a far less painful way to avoid the torment of crucifixion. Individual expressionism would tell Jesus, follow your feelings. Listen to your heart right now in the garden of Gethsemane. You're right. Don't trust anyone else. Praise be to God that Jesus, praise be to God that Jesus said, nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus defeats divination on the hill of Golgotha, Calvary where he was crucified. There were so many other voices now speaking to him. Satan was trying to get Jesus to the very end. If you are the Christ, save yourself. And to listen to other voices is divination. Saul listened to the voices of his men. Saul disobeyed by sparing the best. Jesus obeyed. He didn't spare the best. On Good Friday, the best was crucified. And to obey is better than sacrifice, and God is glorified, and we are saved. Our sins are forgiven by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Obeying God most likely means we're not going to look good in this life. It's going to be hard. What did obeying God look like for Jesus? He didn't look good. In fact, he was beaten and flogged to the point where he was unrecognizable, Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Yeah, you're going to look bad if you obey. We look at Jesus and what happened to him. But God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is seated in glory. And the Bible promises us that all the people of Christ will also be raised from the dead and be seated with Christ in glory. We must look ahead and look upward to what is in store for us and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And only then will we put to death the approval, the idol of approval, will we feel liberated and freed and joyful to obey. Let's pray. Father God, move us to repent for seeking the approval of others and making gods out of our preferences. Show us that true joy is found in obedience and that our sense of worth is found in Jesus.
Jesus, thank you for not only dying for us, but for obeying for us. That we have your everlasting approval and fatherly affection satisfy us with that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.